title of the sermon is, as you can tell from the bulletin, Paul on life and death. And again, the text, Paul speaking, and speaking very personally for to me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of the things that a reader can take away from this text and this passage is that one of the worst possible things for the Apostle Paul uh, would be the thought that anyone could become or be indifferent, become apathetic with regard to Christ and the gospel. And so he uses himself as an example, as an illustration for, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But who was Christ and who is Christ? The scriptures tell us plainly and clearly And yet, even from the earliest days of the Christian church, there were those heretics, those wrong-headed teachers who had false view of Christ. And so the early centuries, the first four, if not five centuries of the Christian church, the, the leaders of the church created creeds. The Apostles' Creed, uh, which we recite from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and later the Chalcedonian Affirmation. Plus there's our own confession of faith, the Baptist Confession of 1689 that describes for us uh, and declares for us not only the work of Christ, but also the nature of Christ or the person of Christ, two natures in one person, true God, true man in one person. Now we ought to know what the creeds teach and we ought to read them, we ought to study them and it's important and it certainly has been down through the history of the Christian church for the church to recite them as a part of public worship. So there's a certain complexity Um, about these things. And at the same time, there's a precious simplicity about Christ and the gospel. Many years ago, there was a famous, very famous theologian who wrote volume upon volume upon volume of commentaries and theological works. And I don't recommend him, which which is why I'm not telling you who he is. But um, he he wrote a great deal, and he was interviewed on one occasion, a radio interview, and uh, the interviewer asked this brilliant mind, what's the most profound theological thought that you've ever had? And there was a pause, and you don't typically do that on the radio, you know, that's dead airtime, that's expensive, uh, but he paused. And then he said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me 
so. For all that this man knew, for all that he had learned, for all that he had expounded, he could reduce in many ways the gospel simply for the simplest believer. And so we have here Paul's simple testimony. For me, and it's in the emphatic position, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. The process of living had to do with Christ. And the act of dying, which is not a process, but an act ultimately, um, was gain. Now I submit to you that this is also a summary statement. It's not only a statement, a statement of Paul's philosophy, if you will, but it's also a pattern, a mold, a model. Here is the goal for every Christian, not merely some kind of super-Christian, which doesn't exist, as if there are multiple categories of Christians, but rather here, it's not only for Paul, who was an apostle, but also for us. And so the, sim- the sentence is very, very simple. There's a parallel statement here. Christ and gain are in the predicate position and living and dying are the subject of the sentence. And so for the Christian, the center of life is Christ. The center of life for every Christian is Christ or it calls into question the nature and character of that profession of faith. For the Christian, the center of life is Christ, and death is the crown of life. Life is Christ, and death is gain. And so I have two points in my outline. I won't tell you how many subpoints I have. That might discourage you, but I have, there's two points to the outline. Paul's priority in life, Paul's priority in life, and Paul's perspective on death. The Puritan Thomas Manton wrote, that life which we have from Christ is used for Christ. His, that is Paul's, meaning is that the service and honor of Christ was the scope and the business of his life. Now we can work this out from a number of key texts that amplify and explain this particular text. For the Apostle Paul, Christ, first of all, was what we might call the summit of life. We, we, we might put it this way, that, that Paul had a view of, of what we could call the cosmic Christ. The Bible describes Christ, and Paul describes Christ as our creator. So he preexisted. He was before the creation, and he, and he created the heavens and the earth, and he preserves them. And Christ is the goal 
for the entire created order as well. Paul puts it this way in in Philippians uh, chapter 2 and at the end there where he says, he speaks of the future when every knee shall bow to Christ on things above, things under the earth. That doesn't mean that everyone is converted, but they will be forced to, they will be compelled to see who he really was. He is involved in creation. He's the preservative to be sure. He is our redeemer. And he subjects or has conquest over everything and everyone. Indeed, he possesses in a non-saving sense, but he possesses nevertheless everything and everyone. Again, Thomas Manton writes, Paul received Christ from God and presents Christ back to God. For Paul, Christ was the summit of life, its goal, its its coronation, if you will. And a great number of texts, which I don't have time to review. But certainly, that's what the New Testament teaches. And then secondly, not only is Christ the the, the, the summit of life in this, in this greatest possible sense that he is and will uh, be the, the, the goal and the crown of creation itself. But secondly, Christ is the source of life. Remember how Paul met Christ. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9. That Paul is on the road to Damascus and he's on the road to Damascus in order to persecute the church and even to put Christians to death. He was a Pharisee and he was in the employ of the religious system of the day. And as he's riding along, he meets Christ and he's thrown to the ground and Christ speaks to him. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, how is he persecuting Christ? He's persecuting Christ because he's persecuting the people of Christ, those who are savingly joined to him. Now, I said that Paul meets Christ. But if you think about that text for just a moment, Paul doesn't meet Christ. Christ meets Paul. See the different Christ took the initiative, and Christ speaks to him, and Paul is struck blind only later to receive his sight, both physically, but also spiritually. Now, I submit to you that conversions, our conversion, wasn't entirely like Paul's. In other words, we don't hear voices from heaven, in fact, if we do Uh, I might suggest you see someone and get a little bit of help. But we don't hear voices from heaven. But he speaks to us nevertheless. And he speaks to us in the gospel. And someone came to you at some point and introduced you to Christ. 
And it may have been a person speaking, it may have been a book. You may have come to church because someone invited you and you heard the gospel. And at some point in all of that, if you're a Christian, Christ spoke to you. And that's why you became a Christian. Again, not in an audible voice, but certainly through his word. So not all of us have these as, as, as an elaborate, a, a crisis experience. But what happened to Paul in its most basic sense is the very thing that happened to us. One writer said, overpowered by Christ on the Damascus road and overwhelmed by his majesty and love and goodness and forgiveness, Paul can see no reason for being except to be for Christ. See the connection there. Not only this cosmic Christ, and that ought to be enough to, to, to give us pause, but it's Christ on the road to Damascus. It's, it's that conversion experience. It's coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Christ is the summit of life. Christ is the savior of life. There's no other savior. John says in his first epistle, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, that he, that is Christ, is the propitiation, that is he absorbed the Father's wrath against sin and sinners. And John says that he is the propitiation for us and some translations have for the sins of the world, but actually sins isn't there at all. It's for the world. And what John is saying is there's no other savior. There, there isn't one. And we live in this, in this multiverse today in which there are those who are saying that there are many different ways to God and many different ways to be saved. But, but the Bible clearly contradicts that. You can't have the Bible and that view. There's no other Savior. So Christ is the Savior of Paul. He's the source of spiritual life. He's the Savior of life. And fourthly, Christ is the sovereign of life. Paul saw himself as a servant. More properly, the term is slave or bond slave of Jesus Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite terms that he uses to describe the Christian, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul saw himself that way. And Paul sees Christians that way, and we need to see ourselves that way under the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Christ is all of that, plus he's the substance of life. By, all of, by that I mean that we come back to the theme, come back to the verse here, he's the central part, he's the theme, he's the focus of the Christian's life. In fact, um, later in my notes, I refer to this 
again, that he's the central part. He's the theme. He's the focus. And that's what Eric was getting at so many years ago when he spoke in chapel and he'd been to Cuba and he saw Cuban Christians, young Christians, having young people as Christians, having, having to, uh, to, to make up their minds. Were they going to be for Christ or were they going to remain in the world? Because that's a culture in which you can't have your foot in two different worlds. You can't be a worldling, as it were, and committed to the things of the world and a serious Christian, there's too much opposition. Uh, Christian young people in, in Cuba can't obtain a university education, can't go to school. And there are no good jobs open to them. And so they have to decide early on. And the point Eric was making, he says, you know, that's really what Christianity is all about. And that's true for you, even though you're probably trying to have your Feet in two different worlds. Since it's impossible. Hence the significance of this text. Christ is the theme. Christ is the focus. Christ is the support of the believer's life. Whatever the believer has, it comes from him. Christ is the strength of the believer's life. Christ is the standard of the believer's life the center of the believer's life. He's the sum of life. He's not something added on that you're something and then added on a Christian. Christ is the study of the believer's life. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, Paul tells us that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. They're found in his natures and in his person, in his offices. And so Christ then is the spotlight of the believer's life. Thomas Boston, another Puritan, wrote, Christ gets self's room in the believer." In other words, Christ replaces self in the life of the believer. And so Christ is the satisfaction of the believer's life, and he is the one to whom the Christian devotes a life of service. One commentator says it this way, to have Christ to love and serve him, to advance his cause, to suffer for him, that is life to him, that is to Paul. And someone else has pointed out that when you have a circumference, a circle, and there's a point in the center of the circle, and you draw a line from any point on that circumference, it always ends up in the exact same place, doesn't it? Draw a line from here, from here, from here, from here. It always ends up in the center. And another writer said, what I live is wholly destined to glorify Christ. The end 
and purpose of my whole life is Christ and his glory. Now listen listen to how Paul puts this elsewhere in um, Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that he wants the mind of Christ. In chapter 3 in verse 1, Paul wants to rejoice in Christ. In chapter 3 in verse 8, Paul wants to know Christ. In chapter 3 in verse 9, Paul wants to possess his righteousness. Paul wanted everything that Christ had and had for him. Again, Thomas Boston writes, Lay the weight of the acceptance of all your duties and all the good you do only upon Jesus Christ. God is only pleased in Him. Venture not to look on God, but through the veil of His flesh. Or John Eady, Christ was the absorbing element of His life. And Matthew Henry, the glory of Christ ought to be the end of your life, the grace of Christ, the principle of your life, and the word of Christ, the rule of your life. There's Paul's priority. There's Paul's priority. Is it yours? Only you can answer. Your life will um, suggest either that it is or it isn't, but or he is or he isn't, But only you can tell as you live out your life in the presence of God. But that's what it means to be a Christian. Again, not two categories or multiple subcategories, but that's what a Christian is. To live for Christ. Now for a few moments, let's give thought to this second part of the sentence. Paul's perspective on death. It is gain. Well, how so? Death really is a terror and a horror. And for a number of different reasons, depending upon who we are. Death comes across as a terror and a horror. But here we have Paul speak of death as being a gain. And again, remember Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 1, that the day of one's death is better than the day of his birth. I mean, how can that be? Especially when we respond in the way we tend to, and certainly people around us, to death as well. Death may be a terror and a horror uh, to those, be, to certain people because of a, of a particular temperament that they have. Um, they, they may believe, but they're, they're just sort of a, a, a fearful sort of person. Or perhaps they've been taught bad theology. And so it terrorizes and terrifies them. And then death is a terror and a horror to those who fear punishment and punishment from God himself. Can this really be true? The person who understands 
what it really means to be a sinner before God may at some point in his life fear punishment, and rightly so, before coming to faith in Christ. But death is a horror and it can be a terror and a horror to those who fear punishment. And then there are those whose theology is so bad that they believe that when one dies, one goes to a place where sins are purged before one is able to enter heaven. And so they fear perhaps possible chastisement, even if they believe that at some point they might go to heaven. And then, of course, death death is a terror and a horror when we pass through a period of bereavement because of the loss of, of a loved one, a friend, or a relative. And so death is a, a terror and a horror, and often due to a false evaluation. Peter O'Brien writes, in the preceding verse, Death and life were viewed from the standpoint of glorifying Christ. Here and in the apostles' subsequent statements, these alternatives are viewed from the perspective of their benefit to Paul and his readers. Now what benefits then? What gain is there from death? And I suggest there's a number of them, and my time is running out, so I'm going to have to sort of give some of these as kind of bulleted reasons, but they'll make sense to you when I read them off. I'm sure that they will. Gain, death is gain, because it means freedom from uncertainty. Of the suspense of life. Paul sees the transcendent excellency, transcendent excellency of that which comes after death. Life is filled with uncertainty, is it not? Uh, you, you, You can't move from day to day, hardly even from hour to hour, without being surprised by something. And of course, even death comes as an unwelcome guest. That is the actual act of death, and we were surprised yesterday, or at least certainly I was. Life is, is filled with, with, a, with a great many suspenses. You drive down the, down the road and, and you have a little fender bender. We didn't expect that, didn't plan for it. Um, and on and on it goes. But in death, your destiny has arrived. And there's no more uncertainty, no more surprises that throw us off. Death is a gain in that it speaks of freedom then from anxiety, from being anxious as to know whether to take this course of action or that course of action or some other course of action. It's destiny is arrived as you arrive as a believer in the presence of God. Thirdly, 
Death is gain in terms of freedom from difficulty. Think of all the pressures of life. The pressures of having to work. The pressure of having to make a living. The pressure of paying all your bills on time. And just all of the long list of of pressures. And you come to the end of the day sometimes and you just sort of flop into bed because of all of the pressures of life. And new ones surfacing. A hurricane, we don't have them here, but we have earthquakes. We have other surprises, I suppose, that may fill us with with anxiety. Pressures of life, difficulty. Fourthly, death is, is a gain in terms of freedom from calamity. I've already hinted at that. There's no more danger to face. There's no more difficulty to face. There are no more earthquakes. There are no more hurricanes. You know, as you know, I spend a lot of time in in Cuba, and you go through hurricane season, and and there are multiple hurricanes that that often spread across the island, and I've seen the aftermath of some really horrific hurricanes. It's a dangerous part of the world in in that sense. There are other kinds of misfortunes that come upon us. Financial misfortune because of the stock market or any number of things. And we're not immune from them. We only fool ourselves if we think that we're immune and we'll never face any difficulty or misfortune. It's living in a fool's paradise to think that that is actually the case. Fifthly, death is gain in terms of Freedom from infirmity, meaning sickness and illness. No more COVID. No more heart ailments, as I'm looking at Dana and her family. And Ron faced its first heart attack at, what, 49, something like that? What was it? Whatever. Yeah. And he's, what, 83, something? Did I get that right? That's a long time to face infirmity. Difficulty. Day after day, week after week, year after year, there's, there's always something there. And there's no more physical infirmity in the life to come. That's a gain. And those of us that are getting older and have all the queaks and squeaks and whatever it is of, of an aging body to look forward to the absence of all physical infirmity is a great thing to look forward to. Sixthly, gain is also seen in terms of freedom from iniquity. Think about that. No more temptation. No more actual sin. And we don't believe in sinless perfectionism. Um, And um, if you claim sinless perfectionism, you might want to talk to your spouse and they would probably uh, inform you otherwise or a good friend would as well. No more temptation. No more difficulty with sin. Common ones and personal ones. 
Paul in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24 says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death or this body of death? Who will deliver me? Thomas Boston wrote, sin's reigning power is broken in sanctification, yet it still abides as a troublesome guest. But at death, it is plucked up by the roots. It's not a dandelion that you pick up and it grows back because you can't get to the roots. Another gain is the freedom from misery, that is from sadness. The loss of something or the loss of someone, it's a place of undiminished joy. Stefan spoke from Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, and, and, and he spoke of rest. And uh, rest is sometimes hard to come by. Um, and you need rest, and you need rest at the end of the day, but you ever had the, the difficulty of trying to, to fall asleep? That's one of the hardest things in the world, is to try to sleep when you, you can't sleep. Rest is a wonderful thing. And rest is, as Stefan said, one of the things that Jesus promised, come unto me and I will give you rest. 2016, my younger brother died of pancreatic cancer. And it was a very difficult last few months. And one of the things that he, he wished for is that if he could just rest. But the pain, even with medication, was too much. And I actually preached from that text at his funeral. Rest is a blessed commodity. It's a blessed thing. Come unto me, Jesus says. I will give you rest. A, a euphemism that is used in, um, in the New Testament especially, is the euphemism of sleep. Death is a, a sleep. Stephen fell asleep in Acts chapter um, 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, death is referred to as sleep. And then in John 11 and verse 11, Jesus refers to Lazarus as being asleep. Now, he's not talking about soul sleep in which the soul uh, is separated from the body and it, it, it sleeps uh, until the resurrection. That's not a biblical doctrine and pretty easy to prove. Otherwise, thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise and so forth. But rest and sleep... And the Bible uses those terms to, to encourage the people of God. Eighthly, there's also the freedom from hostility. You ever have somebody not like you? You don't have to nod your head, but you ever have somebody not like you and have acted in a hostile fashion toward you. There are those who in opposition and who would seek to oppress you if they, if they could. And all of that is 
gone. There's no more oppression. There's no more opposition. No one is out to get you or out to hurt you. All of that has come to an end. There's also the gain of freedom from disgrace and shame and indignity, dishonor, for whatever reason. And even from regret. You ever wish you'd done something differently in life and you regret? And you are where you are today, in some part perhaps because you took a path um, and you could have taken a different path. But there's no more, there's nothing to regret. There's no agony of soul. There's no injury. There's no sorrow or sadness. There's freedom from all necessity. Coming to the end of the month and having more month than there is money in the account, or you have some particular necessity, there's no, there's no necessity in heaven. And as well, perhaps even finally, not quite finally, but almost, gain is also freedom from mortality. There's no more death. You pass that way once, never to die again. And eternity is the place of just men Made perfect, the scriptures say. And I quoted this at uh, Eric's service, but it was Thomas Boston who said, a dying day is the best day of the believer. The best day for the believer that is in all his life. It is their marriage, home-going or homecoming and redemption day. And finally, there's freedom from all ignorance. Now we see by faith, but then we shall see face-to-face. The vision of God what older writers call the beatific vision. Ultimately, the vision of God himself, now the vision of Jesus Christ. And so the believer is free. That's what makes death gain. Free from uncertainty, insufficiency, inconsistency, irrelevancy, meaninglessness, iniquity, ignorance. And even the finality of being obliterated. Again, Thomas Boston wrote, I will make a good exchange of trouble for eternal rest, of a miserable world for heaven, and then shall I fully enjoy this Christ for whom I live and shall glorify him in death whom I glorify by life. Two or three things by way of 
final comment and application. First of all, this passage, this brief text, this really simple text should teach us to abhor, that is to hate and to reject, all doctrines that lessen the glory of Christ. Anything that brings Christ down in terms of who he is and what he has done is to be rejected. Again, Thomas Boston wrote, God's great design in the gospel is to exalt Christ. And here you thought it was just to save you. Well, it was to save. But God's great design in the gospel is to exalt Christ. And the devil's great design is to depress him and to raise up men for that purpose, to object to his nature, his offices, and the like. Or the like. We ought to be quick to reject all doctrines that lessen the glory of Christ and reduce who he is in our thinking. Here is a text also, secondly, that gives to us composure in the face of uncertainty. In other words, the believer's future is certain because of his present. Putting it a little bit differently, let me ask you this question. Are you ready to die well? As Stefan said this morning, the day's coming. And uh, <clears throat> being relatively young, I suppose, it's a long way off. Eric was 49. We don't know. Are you ready to die well? Are you ready to live a life that in that life and its entirety, Christ is the focus? And then to be ready in that way for that definitive act of death. Well, you say, I still don't understand everything. A lot of things I don't understand. Well, that's true for all of us. But Thomas Manton put it this way. He said, I confess we should rather labor to obtain it, that is what is in this verse, than scrupulously to define it. Okay, we can define it so far and then it comes down to living this way. Again, he said, many would have death to be gained, but do not care to live to Christ. Alas, what a foolish thought. You would have comfort, but you would deny duty. You would live to the flesh, yet deny in the Lord. God might have customers more than enough for heaven upon these terms. But he says to die, you will be lost. 
Now, one final thing. And this isn't going to be difficult to define or express. We believe that heaven is gain. Paul says that. The future is gain for the believer at at multiple levels. But why is heaven gain ultimately? Because Christ is there. Or to put it differently, heaven is home because Christ is there. Paul does not wish to die because he's afraid to live, not because life is so intolerable, but because heaven is so desirable. Paul's um, emphasis and response here is not a retreat from life. What he's merely saying is life has no real meaning apart from Jesus Christ. And so he lives well in order that he might die well. A great comfort when you come to die, he said. In a moment, angels will carry you to Christ and Christ to God. Agonies of death are terrible, but there are joys just ready. As soon as you are loose from the prison of the body, you enter into your eternal rest. The soul flieth hence to Christ to be where he is. Let me put it this way. If you have no interest in Christ... You don't want to go to heaven. There's no good reason to go, and you will be miserable. And of course, there's no misery in heaven, which suggests you won't be there. But do you see the point? Heaven is Christ. Heaven is where Christ is. Heaven is where our heart is or where it needs to be. Richard Sibbs, another Puritan, said, it is better to be in any place with Christ than to be in heaven without him. All delicacies without Christ are but as a funeral banquet. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. And so Sibbs says, Christian is a happy man in his life, but happier in his death because he then goes to Christ, but happiest of all in heaven, for then he is with Christ. And so Paul had it right. As hard as it may be, certainly hard as it will be for unbelievers to understand this, but Paul really had it right. And he knew what he was talking about, and of course he did anyway, because this is the inspired word of God. But he says to me, literally living is Christ, and to die is gain. And so we sorrow but not as those who have no hope. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, here is the believer's hope. And without this, and without these two perspectives, Paul's policy and his perspective 
on death, there is no hope. But we have every reason to be full of hope. And that, because of Christ. Father in heaven, we do pray that these words will prove to be a balm and a comfort and an encouragement to us. And we do pray that those, and certainly there are those who are listening to me over the internet as well, that who have never perhaps thought of these things may give serious thought to them. And while we miss Ron and we miss Eric, we believe that they are happy and joyful in your presence, waiting the day of resurrection, as do we. Hasten that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.